Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pop Culture Quorum Deo. I'm one of the regular hosts, Jeff, and I can't wait for you to hear the interview we have on this episode. If you're a long-time listener, you know I always get excited for our interviews, but still, I am as enthusiastic about this interview as any I've ever done. My guest is James Polis, and we're talking about his new book, Human Forever. I assume many of you heard about James the same way I did on his recent interview on the Babylon Bee podcast. Once I heard that episode, I knew I had to try to get him on here and was thrilled when he said yes. If you knew of James' work before I did, it may be because you saw it on the American Mind, which is the Claremont Institute's online publication devoted to driving the conversation about the ideas and principles that drive American political life, or James's executive editor. Dr. Polis graduated from Duke University with distinction in political science and received his Ph.D. in government from Georgetown University. He's also the author of The Art of Being Free from St. Martin's Press in 2017, which is a study of Tocqueville's democracy in America. He also works as contributing editor of American Affairs and is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Digital Life. His writing has been featured in publications from National Affairs to National Review, Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy. He's been praised at the New York Times and the Washington Post and the New Yorker and the New Yorker and many more. Dr. Polis has also appeared on numerous television and radio programs, delivered remarks before audiences at organizations and campuses across the country. Uh, The guy's been everywhere. What I'm most pointedly interested in, though, is his forthcoming book, Human Forever, which is his attempt to save humanity from our still-developing technological apocalypse. In a recent review of the book for American Mind, Daryl Cooper wrote, The challenge of remaining human in the post-disaster world is one we must face without support from industrial age institutions which have been incorporated into territory conquered by the cyborgs and digital swarms. But that does not mean we must face it alone. Polis refuses to lie to the reader or peddle false hope, but nevertheless manages to leave one with a firm certainty that it is humanity's war to win if only we show up to fight. He has taken up the great task of Generation X by telling of the digital apocalypse that his generation has straddled. But more than that, he's written a survival manual for last men who refuse to go down without a fight. If you're interested in understanding our technological moment from a Christ-informed, pro-human perspective, then James is your guy. He's also your guy if you've ever experienced a sudden epiphany that we are living in C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength. Let's get going on my interview with James Polis. James Polis, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you giving us some time tonight. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Pleasure to be with you. Good. Thank you for for making time for this. I have to confess, James, I'm catching up to your work and I feel like kind of a dummy for it. I heard you recently on the Babylon Bee podcast. And in that interview, I thought, this is a guy that I've been like looking for. I've been looking for this kind of work uh, for quite some time, catching up with what you've been up to. I see uh BA from Duke, right? And then did a PhD at Georgetown. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, PhD in government, not to be confused with political science. Sure. Okay. Okay. Well, look, this is the most lowbrow question I can ask in a lot of that, but I'm a basketball fan. Tell me you watched basketball while you were at those schools. Well, you know, when I was at Duke, I was out there in the tent uh, in the dead of winter, sitting in about three inches of water, trying to get homework done and waiting to get into Kville, so uh, or rather into uh, into the stadium. So it was a good time. Yeah, you you've been at some meccas there. Well, brother, I I reached out to you to talk to you about this new book you have coming out called Human Forever. And uh, if I could give you a if I could give our listeners rather a summary, uh, I think you're looking at the way that tech. Uh, has outpaced uh, humanity's ability to handle it. But there are people out there, maybe with not the best intentions, who are interested in using technology to manipulate us towards a post-human future. Again, that's my summary. As I've, as I've said, I've been trying to scramble to kind of keep up with your your work on this. Um, is that a fair description of what prompted you to write Human Forever? Well, yeah, I would say that, you know, technological advancement has uh, has sort of slipped the leash of the people who created it. Uh, there was a, a real expectation that, you know, the devices that are now kind of everywhere, most of them invisible, flying through the air at all times. Uh, when 5G comes, they're going to be able to communicate with zero latency, totally outside the bounds of human space time. Uh, there was a real belief among, uh, you know, the the elite who built these devices and introduced them to uh, to our country and then across the world. Uh, that they would perfect or bring to fruition 
their their form of rule around the world. Uh, and and they said as much, you know, like this the U.S. is the sole superpower and uh, globalization is good and we're going to kind of move everyone in the world into closer connectivity and, uh, you know, destroy uh, trade barriers and take down communications barriers. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're going into one world and we're going to be at the top of the heap and, uh, you know, what's not to like. Uh, well, what we found out, you know, pretty quickly is that, uh, number one, uh, that technology um, has a, a, a sort of way of its own and it, it influences and shapes us uh, independently uh, in ways that we, uh, we, we can't necessarily predict uh, or, you know, don't see coming. Even uh, some of our best scientists, you know, basically ignorant or, or don't believe in something like formal cause, you know, Aristotle's idea that there's sort of like this environmental causation Um and that's what technology has had on us. It's changed our sensibilities. It's changed our inner and outer lives. Uh, some might say it's even, you know, had a certain kind of effect on our souls. Uh, and if you've got an elite class that, you know, doesn't really believe in God, doesn't really believe in the soul, doesn't really believe in natural law, um, materialist, uh, big fans of formal math, uh, convinced that it's possible to have like, uh, you know, sort of determinacy in uh, programming so that whatever you put in, you know exactly what you're going to get out. You know, for those folks, uh, they they really uh, led themselves astray, thinking that these machines were going to seamlessly deliver that kind of perfect, uh, uh, you know, global governance experience. Uh, and lots of Americans, you know, went along for the ride. Uh, it didn't really matter too much to us that basically we were using uh, military and intelligence technology that had been sort of watered down and repurposed for, uh, you know, consumer electronics uh, for entertainment purposes. Uh, you know, we were on top. The the money was good. Uh, America was at peace. Um, and then circumstances changed pretty fast. Uh, you know, we had the the war on terror. We had uh, 2008. Um, we had, you know, Barack Obama in the White House doing kind of not a lot except taking selfies. And people thought that uh, that we were on easy street. And then they woke up one morning and realized that uh, that we weren't, uh, that we faced uh, serious challenges. And one of the main challenges um, that is now, I think, the the preeminent challenge uh, is that these machines rule the world in a way that that no human being or group of human beings can do. Um, and that, you know, that makes the elite pretty upset. Uh, it's embarrassing to them. Uh, it's it's alarming to them. I mean, they they they're aware that the financial system that we've had up until this point uh, is collapsing, uh, in part because of these technologies. And so they're scrambling for a way to reassert control. And uh, they want to control those machines and, you know, control us through them. Uh, that's this is sort of a fallback plan, I think, for most of them, uh, you know, they have to do a lot of work now that they, they didn't plan on doing. Um, and so, you know, if, if the bots have, uh, have, have slipped their leash, um, you know, I would argue that it's our turn now, you know, we have the ability ourselves, uh, right now to, uh, to take control of, uh, of databases of, uh, technology like uh, Bitcoin that allows us not just to, to, to pile up money or, uh, you know, to see into other people's lives, uh, but really to create culture uh, so that we can, you know, build institutions, build, uh, build culture, create things that have value, that are memorable, share those things, exchange those things with one another. Really just, you know, a basic way to tell, uh, tell the compute, tell the machines uh, what to do, uh, give them tasks that are good for us, that strengthen our humanity rather than undermine it. Uh, so I think we've still got time to do that. Uh, obviously, this is a weird world that we're in and a lot of people are feeling demoralized and dis dispirited, confused. Uh, it's, you know, it's not rocket science really to, to grab hold of some of these technologies and put them to good use. Uh, and the sooner that we do that, uh, the sooner we can uh, make sure that we're not just all going to be kind of, uh, escorted into a big social credit system. Yeah. And so I guess that's, um, that's the first horizon, right? A, an American social credit system implemented through technology and surveillance that you think would, um, would be the, the, the most imminent danger or is there something else that's maybe more subtle coming? Well, you know, social credit's already here. I mean, mm. look at look at the way that all of these uh, sort of consumer reports organizations and uh, advertising corporations, uh, they're sitting on huge databases. They know, you know, everything about your habits, sort of what you like, what you don't, how old you are, where you live. Uh, it gets really granular. And, you know, when that stuff is in the service of, of delivering you a well-targeted ad for, you know, a certain kind of toilet paper that you're fond of, like, it doesn't seem like that big of a problem. Uh, but when you combine that with the fact that our financial system is more centralized than it was before the financial crisis. Um, our education system uh, is more centralized and is more dogmatic and, and more bent on uh, uh, using its gatekeeping function to indoctrinate people uh, than it was even five years ago. 
Uh, you look at our financial system. You know, the the banks um, are are uh, are jealously guarding their powers. Uh, the Federal Reserve is uh, printing money faster than it can be digested. Uh, and uh, Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen, you know, she she thinks there's going to be a seven trillion dollar tax deficit that reflects an extreme lack of confidence among the American people in the the quality of the value of the dollar. And so they want to penetrate down into the very intimate details of your life and uh, and and monitor everything that you're doing, and you know ultimately to move people I think away from uh, the the financial system that they built, which is now failing, and into uh, a a formalized social credit system where uh, you know you're you're competing for and getting rewarded in basically points uh, rather than uh, rather than dollars. Uh, you know, lots of Americans have sort of points plans on their favorite credit cards or whatever membership plans. We're accustomed to this. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if you're just kind of a scientist sitting in a lab, you look at a shift to a social credit system like that and you go, well, you know, there could be certain advantages and, oh, it's more efficient in some ways and uh, so on and so forth. And that, you know, it's, it's not that that's wrong. It's just that it's inconsistent, incompatible with, and in fact, hostile to our form of government, uh, and increasingly to, to our humanity, you know, to our human identity that, that undergirds that. Uh, we've got a huge concentration of public and private power, you know, really pushing things uh, like the idea that, you know, you you have to treat uh, uh, people who have who have uh, who are deemed to have changed their biological sex in a certain way or else you can't participate in the public discourse. You can't have certain jobs. You're, you, you know, you won't be um, allowed in certain kinds of uh, business transactions. Uh, and when you look at something like that, you know, I mean, they added a, a sort of trans stripe to the to the uh, woke flag or whatever you want to call it. And uh, that that makes it seem like it's all part of the same project. But uh, to be quite honest, you know, we've had we've had gay people uh, on planet Earth for a very long time, and we haven't had cyborgs on planet Earth for very long at all. Uh, and when you look at someone who you know purports to have transformed themselves from a man to a woman, or vice versa, uh, that's actually not what's happened. What's happened is this person has taken the first big step that's available right now toward becoming a transhuman, a posthuman, you know, someone who is, who is a marriage of, uh, of man and machine, of person and technology. Uh, and I think the reason why that's getting so much uh, pressure and support from on high is because, you know, the, the way to make a social credit system really hum, you know, really work at a high level, at a powerful level, is by encouraging people that, you know, their real world humanity, it's not that great. You know, humans pretty much suck. The machines are better than us anyway. You know, it, we get fat, we get ugly, you know, we can be lazy. I mean, just the the laundry list of, of problems with human beings. We can have bad opinions. We're dangerous. We're, we're filthy. We're dirty. You know, we're scary. Just, uh, you know, scaremongering us about our own human identity, making us long for something more, something different, something pure, something that used to be fulfilled uh, across our country and others. Uh, by organized religion. Uh, and in the absence of, of organized religion that's opening up, uh, people are increasingly looking to our machines um, in, in a religious sort of way, uh, looking to technology to save us from ourselves, uh, looking to surrender their responsibilities to, uh, to automated systems, to programs, algorithms. Uh, and, you know, as long as they feel like there's, there's someone who's ethically perfect at uh, sort of organizing things behind the scenes like the Wizard of Oz, they're increasingly ready to sign their humanity away. I think that's a terrible mistake. You know, we're, we're not going to magically turn into gods. We're, I, you know, I don't think we're going to turn into bugs either. That's the sort of dystopian vision. Uh, but they can do a lot of damage and they can convince people, as I think a lot of people are, are becoming convinced, that their humanity is bad news, not good news, and that we should look on our, our incarnate and sold given selves as something, as an obstacle to our uh, to our happiness or our destiny. Uh, that's, you know, that's more than social credit. That's, uh, that's a, a step away from our humanity. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's, that's, things are moving really fast, but people need to focus on this and recognize it for what it is. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the way that um, we've kind of hit the ground running here, but I'm an evangelical and um, I think about the evangelical audience. That's primarily who this podcast is aimed at. Some of the things you're talking about here, I want to come back to, particularly the transhumanist moment. Um, but before we do that, for the listener, maybe who this is new for, um, some of the things you've been talking about here, social credit, people who want to manipulate what it means to be human, things of that nature. Two years ago, we're called, you know, in, in evangelical circles, radical conspiracy theories. And you were sort of treated like you were uh, wearing a tinfoil hat if you if you believe this stuff, if you thought this stuff was possible. If, if if someone's listened to this and they're still not convinced, you, you've hit on certain things, the way that, you know, big tech is gathering big data to know right down to the granular levels of our life. But is there any one singular uh, sort of flashpoint or guide point in, uh, in society where you say, look, 
if you're not convinced of this, look at X, Y, Z and um, think about the implications of that. Does that question make sense? I'm trying to help the person who hasn't thought nearly as deeply as you have kind of catch up to, oh, gosh, this maybe is more of a problem than I thought it was. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I'll confess that I'm, I myself am, am over-reliant on uh, technology. My ring light here just uh, blew a fuse in my house. It's very rainy here in Southern California. And that means that, uh, that my, uh, my video vibe has changed considerably. So we'll just have to, to roll with it. But I mean, you know, there's lots of evidence that you can look for. I mean, I, I would point right now to Facebook since that's in the news. I mean, Facebook is a company that uh, obviously made a ton of dough, got lots of people onboarded into its system, um, and was really at the forefront <clears throat> of figuring out how to direct advertise to uh, specific demographics of people. Um, again, you know, that, that kind of thing can seem beneficial, or if it's annoying to you, you can kind of just ignore it and keep scrolling. Uh, but it's tremendously powerful. And I think the power that Facebook has accumulated, the money, the reach, the influence, uh, once 2016 hit and, uh, you know, Donald Trump pulled out a surprise uh, surprise victory, um, a lot of the folks at the top of, uh, you know, government, military, industrial complex, intelligence community, uh, at the top of the major corporations, the banking system, uh, Hollywood, you know, uh, education, all those groups, you know, they looked at, at, uh, at Facebook and at Silicon Valley and they said, Hey, you know, we really built you guys. You would not exist without the funding that we provided you at the beginning. You wouldn't exist without the technologies that we spun off from, uh, from you know, basic R and D uh, in our labs. Uh, and we trusted you to uh, use these technologies to kind of perfect, you know, a, a global governance system with the United States at the top. And that's not what you've given us. Uh, you know, you let people into your uh, into your platforms who don't like us. They don't agree with us. They have different opinions. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, diametrically opposed opinions. Uh, and now we got this guy in the White House who's going to be their champion. Um, you have to fix this, I think, was the message that came down to to Zuckerberg and to others. Uh, and if you don't start fixing it, we're going to fix it for you. Um, that I, I think that probably some kind of ultimatum like that was issued in some form or another, maybe not on a nice piece of paper with letterhead, but one way or the other, uh, they got the message, and you know, it was Twitter, it was Facebook, these coordinated efforts by social media platforms to zap away uh, President Trump. And you know, if they can zap away the president, they can zap away other people. And we really are, you know, you don't have to be a registered Republican or whoever in order to recognize that on Twitter.com, there's no President Trump and there is uh, the Taliban. They have that kind of power, and that kind of power is important because in an era where you know we're not fighting a lot of shooting wars right now, a lot of the the conflict, a lot of the civil conflict, cultural conflict, economic conflict that's being done inside and outside of our borders is done through communications. Communications have been weaponized. You know, it's a lot more powerful and effective than than the nuclear bomb. Uh, the military was pretty disappointed in a certain sense when they found out that you know they used the best scientists to create the most powerful weapons. But they just created a sort of dilemma with with nuclear weapons. So, you know, what's the next step? What can we do? How can we create a super weapon that we can actually use? Uh, and in a sense, like that's what the Internet did. Uh, that's what smartphones did. Uh, you know, it, it handed uh, intelligence agencies and governments uh, a, a, a great kind of new power that um, that they can actually use 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, with uh, with an incredible amount of of insight into who who they're looking at and what those people are doing, uh, and so what's the next step with Facebook? You know, you got the the Facebook whistleblower, which is really just you know uh, a high paid op by uh, by a bunch of folks. You know, big foundations, some Soros money kicking around in there. Uh, uh, you know, people who uh, who are are personal friends with Jen Psaki because they were in the Obama administration. Uh, you know, really a concerted effort by these these top folks in the elite to uh, package someone, roll them out, get Facebook really pinned to the mat. And they don't want to break up Facebook. They don't want to they make Facebook go away. They want Facebook. They want Facebook mm -hmm. to become Fedbook. Uh, that's the kind of power they want. You know, a generous interpretation would be. Uh, they really don't want to have to do this. They'd really like a world where we can still have civil liberties, but they're convinced that in order to beat China, we got to become like China. They're convinced that, you know, the only way that this is going to work is if they just make wokeness mandatory. Uh, that's where, you know, all the, the most riled up people are. Uh, that seems to be what the corporations are willing to do. Uh, just kind of, you know, seize this opportunity to uh, to start with the kids and and get them onboarded into this uh, ideology and and make it official, make it sort of the ethical framework for the social credit system. 
and you know the the fight over Facebook, I think, is right at the the frontier of of uh, of this unfolding effort uh, to move us uh, into you know a very standardized, very uniform uh, system where you know basically the government tells you what is okay to say and what's not okay, what's okay to think and what's not okay to think, uh, how you're allowed to talk to certain people, uh, who you have to work with, uh, you know, uh, who you have to speak well of, who you have to celebrate, who you have to uh, you know put up statues of whose holidays uh, you need to you need to participate in. Um, that's all that's all coming if we go down this current road. Uh, and I think you know the the fight to see who who gets to control Facebook and and tell it how to dance is well underway. Okay. okay, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So if I could circle back now to the transhumanist issue, um, back in the early 2000s, a friend of mine was taking seminary classes at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, and he passed me this book where um, I think this was before, I think this was before the first iPhone, but he passed me a book where these feminists were writing about their longing for technology to evolve to the point where they could escape gender and they could transfer their consciousness into technology. It would allow them to get past the trappings of, uh, you know, the, the difficulties of engendered and, and biological life. And, um, that, that just stuck in my brain. Uh, and in fact, they also wanted to be, they wanted to be able to reproduce asexually, right? So you just build whatever the next intelligence is going to be housed in. And it, it kind of buried in my brain. And, um, as we went, as we've gone along in the 2000s, um, I've been telling friends that I think transgenderism, something you've already mentioned, transgenderism is sort of the small dragon's head and the great big dragon's head behind it is transhumanism. I know that he is a um, he, he's a controversial figure, but Andrew Torba of Gab.com has said, "Look, guys, transhumanism is is the play here." Um, can can we talk about uh, a, tra- a a transhuman future when we're already so wedded to our cell phones? Like, are are we already living with smartphones attached to our brains? This is, I guess, my question is: Is this a future dystopia, or is this something that we're already living in? Well, I think, you know, I think you're right that once the smartphone became a commodity in a certain sense, <clears throat> we all became cyborgs. Uh, but, you know, we can still put the phone down. We can still turn the phone off. We can still get a hammer out of the shed and beat that thing into uh, a billion pieces. Um, things are different when the phone is inside your head. Things are different when, uh, in fact, there, there is no phone. It's just kind of some goo that you inject into your body and it's full of nanobots and those things achieve some level of fitness or homeostasis or whatever you want that, you know, your body can't do on your own. Uh, when the, the boundary of politics enters into the human body, you know, then, then things start to get a lot different. Uh, and it's been remarkable to see feminists, you know, feminists who, uh, used to rally around slogans like U.S. out of my uterus, you know, now they're like, well, no, in fact, the U.S. should should enter into everyone's bodies. Uh, the You know, the U.S. should take affirmative steps to turn us all uh, into cyborgs because human beings, you know, in, in some sense, it's unjust to be human, that if we want real justice, we have to leave our humanity at the door. Uh, and you're right, this has been going on for a long time in, you know, certain feminist circles. It's odd to talk about people who are feminists who are against uh, uh, female biological sex. But there you go. Donna Haraway uh, with the Cyborg Manifesto, mm. uh, Firestone Shulamith, you know, others who really just... Uh, you know, conceived of feminism as a project to destroy uh, biological uh, sex, um, and uh, you know any any program that purports to uh, to emancipate us by destroying our humanity, uh, that is one that should give everyone a very strong gut check. You know, regardless of what the consequences are uh, for speaking up in public uh, and and getting yourself some flack. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Hey, let me tell you a story that. Um Maybe our listeners can, can, can sort of feel the chill with me. I, I teach at a classical Christian school and, uh, we go K through 12. A student that I've been pretty close to over the years who, um, raised by a wonderful family, but was just given unfettered access to the internet from a very young age. I watched this just, um, become a spiritual war within him. So he went from just spending a ton of time on the internet to studying Nietzsche and Nietzsche made him an, uh, a nihilist. And the last time we met, he wanted to talk through an idea with me where he said that his only hope for the future of humanity is for an artificial intelligence, uh, smart enough to tell us what to do. And I, you know, I just pitched him the obvious sci-fi question. Uh, when the AI says we're too inefficient and it's time for us to go, uh, 
do we critique that? And he, this, I mean, this is a very smart young man. He said, you know, if the AI decides that's best, that is what will be best. And so I watched him swap the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and, and the father of Jesus for a God of AI that he, I mean, he's really banking every hope he has for the future on artificial intelligence. Well, it is disturbing. And, you know, what's really disturbing about it to me is people, why are people starting to think this way? I mean, some of it is just that, you know, human beings are imitative creatures. We're, we're more imitative than we are rational. You know, hate to break it to all my rationalist uh, friends and Twitter followers out there. Uh, and when we see uh, these machines or when we sense them, because, you know, a lot of this stuff is uh, just flying through the ether, so to speak. Uh, uh, we detect them, uh, witness them doing things that we can't do. Um, and, uh, having a kind of power and, uh, and license, uh, to, to just grow this immense swarm, you know, uh, we want to imitate that. We're envious of these machines. We fear that unless we become more like them, we won't be able to survive. Uh, and, you know, we feel shame for our humanity. Uh, and, you know, people have been wrestling with, shame for our humanity for thousands of years. And, uh, you know, in that sense, this is, this is natural and it's a part of who we are, but this is not something that can be solved or fixed and certainly not by technology. But, you know, really what's, what's driving, I think, this kind of despairing willingness to throw ourselves at the feet of our own uh, inventions, you know, these sort of soulless inventions, uh, is that people really believe that there's nothing superior to knowledge, that, you know, wisdom at the end of the day doesn't exist, that, you know, authority and charisma, you know, these, well, it ultimately just comes down to what you know how to do, what power you know how to wield. Um, and that's, you know, that's not just at odds with Christianity. That's at odds with, you know, classical philosophy. That's at odds with more or less every major world religion. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, there's lots of uh, Christian theology in the book, and a lot of what I go into is sort of how uh, Christianity, but also Judaism and some other religions, uh, kind of became host bodies for, uh, for a Gnostic viewpoint, you know, the idea that, that it's consciousness or this spark of, of divine spirit within us that, that really counts. And, you know, our bodies are just kind of these garbage dumps that are imprisoning, uh, this pure and perfect spark. And so, you know, religion for the Gnostic, which comes from the Greek word for, for knowledge, gnosis, uh, is all about, you know, destroying the the prison of the body to let the spirit free. And, you know, the, obviously you see this in the, the trans uh, transgender, you know, transsexual stuff and the, the, the feminist, you know, works that we that we just discussed. Uh, and, you know, that view that the view that there's really nothing um, other than knowledge uh, for us to have, for us to use, for us to wield, that in, at the end of the day, if we can't become knowledge, then we're just going to be cast aside, that we're just refuse. Uh, that's really uh, a toxic and dangerous uh, and, you know, and very old uh, malicious um, mistake mm. that, uh, that we make at our peril. We've been wrestling it, uh, wrestling with it for many years. And, you know, that's why the, the subtitle of this book is The Digital Politics of Spiritual War. Uh, the, this spiritual conflict that we're in, uh, is is inextricable now with our technological power. And, uh, you know, it all comes down to realizing uh, that there's a lot more to life than knowledge and there's lots of stuff that knowledge can't do and that certain kinds of knowledge are, in fact, bad for us because they destroy our humanity in the end. Well, that's a great pivot point. I've got kind of three sections I want to get into while I've got your time, and, and this is a good way to transition. Um, and I, I want to talk about what living faithfully looks like. So you've set up this scenario where, like, uh, we're going to have injectable technology that keeps us constantly with no latency, con you know, connected to uh, the AI cloud or whatever. And so it is sort of like a perfect Gnosticism. We've escaped all the limitations of this mortal coil or this mortal stuff uh, to to have full access to all knowledge uh, internally. But you want us to stay human forever. And so I mean, what does it mean to be human? And how does how does humanity check um, some of these things we've been talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, if you go back to Aristotle, you get some pretty solid answers. Uh, we are the political animal. Hmm. Uh, you know, we are, we are the, the animal who, uh, who must engage in politics. Aristotle said, uh, he who is, uh, does, does not, uh, live in the city is either a, a beast or a God. And, you know, that was kind of his way of saying like, you know, uh, we are social creatures and we need one another and it is natural and inherent to us. 
uh, not, you know, not to be connected in some abstract sense, but to, you know, to mix and mingle among our kind, to see each other face to face, to build things together hand in hand. Um, that's a that is a, an in, indivisible, uh, inalienable part of of what it means to be human. Uh, we are incarnate. We have bodies, uh, bodies that you know until further notice will die. Um, you know, it, the, there are lots of people in the Bible, especially in the the earlier uh, books, uh, who live considerably longer than most of us do nowadays. Uh, so you know, I think there are areas where technological advancement. You know, hey, you give us fifty more healthy years. You know, that's not necessarily an attack on our humanity at all. Mm. Uh, but in, in a climate, in a cultural climate where people are desperate to uh, to escape their humanity and escape the responsibility of being human, then, yeah, even relatively benign or helpful uh, innovations can be, you know, can can be used to undermine uh, who we are. Um, so all this stuff, you know, you can't take the. The technology, you can't assess it in isolation. You got to assess it, you know, in a spiritual way because it comes to bear on on uh, on our human identity. Uh, you know, and, and that brings me to probably the third uh, central point, which is uh, we have souls. We're we are ensouled incarnate creatures. Uh, we didn't we didn't make our souls ourselves. Uh, we didn't make us. We didn't make ourselves come alive. Uh, we can't make uh, other human beings come alive except through you know a very specific process of biological reproduction. Uh, and you know, once again, like you, you don't have to be a Christian to believe in the soul, but it helps. Uh, you know, Aristotle uh, wrote uh, lots of, of very smart stuff about anima, about the the breath of life, you know, that is in in living animate organisms, uh, and how you can't reduce you know living creatures uh, to to matter, to uh, to to inanimate material. Um, Sarah Silverman, the uh, the comedian, had a, a quote that she liked to throw around uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was her Twitter bio at some point, uh, and it said, "We're all just molecules, cutie." Uh, and you know, that's an example of the kind of materialism that that denies, you know, not just sort of a, a Christian understanding of a soul, but any understanding of a soul. You are just particles hanging together, moving through space and time. Uh, you know, that's not. An invitation to safeguard who you are and to uh, you know to to recognize that your identity is a precious gift. Uh, that's an invitation to you know to idolatry and ultimately to nihilism. Um, this this podcast looks at quite a few different aspects of pop culture, and uh, there's a Netflix series out called Midnight Mass. I love horror, and uh, it's by a guy named Mike Flanagan, who's one of my favorite creators. Um, and it's it's a Catholic priest on this small island, and and horror hijinks happen. But basically what you just said there in the materialist were just molecules is the thesis of that of that entire piece. And it's a it's a chilling world to live in, man. You, they want it to be beautiful. But uh, if you see through it, it's scandalously, scandalously awful. Um, can I, I I didn't prep you for this. And so I'm going to mark the time here. Uh, tell me if you want to throw over past this thing. And I'll edit it out. But as you're thinking through this, I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis's or as you're talking through this. I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis's uh, "That Hideous Strength." Uh, you're, you're familiar with that that work? Yeah, yeah. Lewis uh, saw a few things. That's for sure. For sure. So here's uh, again. I'm an evangelical. I believe the whole kit and caboodle. I believe there's a man who rose from the dead. I believe a snake talked at some point. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm in for all of that. So um, you have talked about the spiritual repercussions of technology uh, in our day. And I, I think of it in more of a, of a horizontal sense. How is this shaping us as humans? How is this reshaping us? Maybe how are people wanting to reshape us? But there's also sort of a, in the background, and I've not finished your book yet, so maybe you get to this, but there's a real Tower of Babel sense about this moment, isn't there? I mean, is that is it strange to think of the Tower of Babel when we're thinking through these things? Uh, no, it's not strange. Uh, you know, I mean, there there are uh, many verses that I could cite for you, but then I'll be giving away uh, parts of the book that I'd rather have people uh, discover uh, book in hand. Um, but you know, I will I will allude to them, which is you know, the biblical view is that the secrets within every human heart will only be disclosed at the end time by God the Father. You know, at a time when not even, you know, Jesus Christ himself knows when that time will be. Uh, and one of the promises of the social credit system is, no, actually, we know those secrets. You know, we will know everything. We, it will be a regime of knowledge. It will be a kingdom of knowledge. And we will open the books. We'll open all the books. And we decide whose book opens and whose clo book closes at what time. But we see all and we know all. You know, real uh, eye of Sauron hours. Um, that's a big part of it. Uh 
even just, you know, the the idea of an end time, the idea that like, OK, you know, humanity's done, pack it in. It's over. Uh, there's no looking back. Um, you know, that's that's supposed to be, um, according to scripture, um, a time when the uh, the wheat and the tares or the weeds are separated out. And, you know, the parable of the wheat is a parable that says, you know, do not try to separate out the wheat and the weeds. That is going to be God's doing. And if you if you transgress that bound and you try to do it on your own, things will not go well for you and they won't go well for other people. Uh, so, you know, there, there are powerful resonances here. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think that the, uh, the catastrophe, the digital catastrophe has already happened. I mean, this is why so many people are, are literally losing their minds every day is because the, you know, the changes have been made. People don't know what to do about it. They don't want to have kids because they don't know what to tell their kids. They, they fear that what they'll tell their kids is being human sucks and humans are bad. Um, they're afraid of, of the world to come. Uh, and uh, and the, the antidote to that, you know, is to recognize uh, that we are, you know, <laughs> If we're going by the words of Jesus, we are not yet in in the the actual end times. Uh, we, you know, the the various sort of, of signals that that he described to his disciples, we haven't really hit him yet. Uh, you know, I, I'm not presenting myself as kind of the final authority on uh, on inter- the interpretation of scripture, uh, but I think it, you know, it's very easy to kind of look at the uncertainty clouding the world. Um, the uh, the evil that is uh, freely you know sort of has a free hand throughout the world, and to conclude that you know that we're done, that it's you know if the, just go up into the mountains and and pray and fast and wait for it all to fall apart. Um, I don't think it's quite that bad yet, uh, and I would I would prefer that it doesn't get that bad. You know, ultimately not my choice, but uh, you know I think I think the the biblical injunction to the, to the Christians of of whatever stripe is you know. Yes, be watchful. Yes, be prayerful. But be humble and recognize that you know it's it's not time to hang it up until uh, until things are much worse uh, than they are now, and you know worse still than they have been in the past. For all the the heinous stuff going down right now, uh, millions of people are not being massacred. Cities aren't being burned to the ground. Uh, you know this uh, pandemic is is really pretty mild stuff compared to previous plagues. Locusts not quite falling from the sky. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of secularists right now are uh, are the ones, you know, panicking about the end times. Uh, and I think that that is, you know, demoralizing and dispiriting in a way that clouds uh, for for the rest of us, you know, uh, our understanding and our recognition of just, you know, how many blessings we we still can count and how much we have to be grateful for and how much, you know, capacity for for preserving the integrity of our humanity and for our children and, you know, their children, we still have left to go. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm largely with you there in terms of where we're at in God's timetable, but I was also reading an article that said South Africa is being consumed by locusts right now, man. So, you know, keep your options open. <laughs> the locusts are out there. I'm, I'm a little bit more worried about uh, digital locusts than yeah. uh, the real ones, but uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not our choice to make. Well, before I put uh, a pin on the, Tower of Babel section here, and I, and I would want to talk maybe about what faithfulness looks like in this moment. Um, you have mentioned, you mentioned on the podcast with the Babylon B that 5G technology is going to give zero latency tech, uh, that, that bandwidth will give zero latency communication options, right? That that is, I think the way you said it is, that used to be only reserved for angels. That they were the only ones who could communicate with such speed. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. I mean, you know, just even, even something like Wi Fi, uh, that's, that's, pretty powerful stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, the desert fathers, uh, talked about how, you know, demons and sorcerers could do various things that we now associate with these technologies. I don't think that means that technologies are demonic themselves, but you know, if you, if you take, uh, the existence of angels and demons seriously, uh, you know, that, that stuff is all swirling around as, uh, the technological situation is playing out. I mean, Marshall McLuhan was a very serious scholar of media. He was in his case, a Catholic convert, uh, you know, and he said, uh, he said that the uh, basically the 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 uh, the prince of this world is um, is an electrical engineer, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know it is it has been known uh, for some time that uh, that the devil is considered to be the most powerful in the air. Uh, 
Uh, so, you know, we're messing with some primal stuff. And there are lots of people now who, you know, take completely seriously the idea that aliens are here and they're zipping around in their spacecraft, right. really outlandish things. And, you know, you can see some evidence or not. Uh, but if you drill down into the, uh, most of the, the alien uh, sort of encounters on record, even the best uh, uh, sort of uh, alien experts, uh, psychologists and so forth, will admit that, uh, that these experiences and people recount them. Are, are cannot really be distinguished from spiritual experiences. Uh, they can't really distinguish, you know, oh, I know that this happened for real on planet Earth. No, it was like, well, I think they took me somewhere and like something happened and I'm not entirely sure what it was, but I've just been messed up ever since, you know? And, uh, and so the boundaries between, you know, spiritual activity and technological activity are probably a little bit more porous than, than people are giving credit for. But I think, you know, as social media has gotten more intense, um, as more and more young people have really just kind of hit a wall of where they're having a, a psychic break on the internet every day and they're trying to present themselves in, you know, increasingly bizarre ways and, and just clearly departing from their basic humanity and turning against it. I think people are catching on that, you know, the, the, the boundary between the technological and the spiritual is, uh, is not a very strong one. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I expect that to, to continue to weaken. And that's why, that's why at the end of the day, you know, if we're going to have these kinds of machines, uh, sharing space with us on this planet, uh, we have to reassert our our command over space and time. Uh, we have to take seriously the idea that we are stewards of this planet uh, with regard to technology as much as with regard to uh, to animal life and the environment. Uh, and we're going to have to, you know, figure out uh, how to make our our bots uh, believe our religion. Mm. No, this is a long way away from one world where John Lennon say, oh, we're done with religion. You know, there's no heaven. We're all just going to hang out. We're not really going to own anything. It's going to be great. Uh, that world is behind us now. And, and every country on Earth that has its own sort of like religious tradition and, and its own civilization and has the power to do so, they are working as hard as they can right now to figure out how to catechize their bots. China's doing it with Taoism. Russia, you know, Russia's response to the digital age was to build a big honking cathedral just outside of Moscow dedicated to uh, to the armed forces of Russia, you know, dedicated to the resurrection of Christ with this big golden glowing, you know, Jesus emerging from uh, from from on high. Uh, you know, Europe's a little more a little more complicated, but, you know, the Israelis, uh, they got a, a tons of tech geniuses. They're serious about their religion, uh, at least in most cases in Israel. Um, in India, you know, India is as old as any uh, civilization, and uh, it's not surprising to see them start to sort of flex their muscle on, on sovereign control of, uh, of their Internet. Uh, you got to have bots who, you know, who are on your side at the highest level, at the, you know, at the level of, of you know, your understanding of, of the cosmos and of ontology and of, of theology. And so that's, you know, that's, that's what's going on in America right now is, is a kind of civil war, a kind of culture war over those issues. Uh, we don't need to be, you know, marching through the fields, taking musket shots at each other in order to be seriously fighting for, you know, for for the soul of our country and what kind of regime we're going to have in a digital age. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's what we're doing through communications. Again, you've transitioned us well. But before I leave the Lewis point, I'm just going to ask you, when you read that hideous strength, you know, you work your way up through the bureaucracy and eventually somebody's talking to a demon possessed head. Um how open are you to the idea that, you know, at some level here, we've got a demon-possessed head somewhere running around kind of orchestrating some of the stuff that's going on? I, I don't want to get too, uh, you know, too out there, but we have to account for sort of, like you said, the prince of the air who would probably have some overlapping concerns with the things we're seeing, right? Uh, I mean, you know, just just put yourself in Satan's shoes for a minute and ask yourself, you know, how would I feel about what's going on? Where would I? I mean, there, there's, it seems like the answers to those questions are so obvious that they can make it sound kind of ridiculous. Um, but, you know, if you take uh, the existence of angels and, and demons seriously, if you take the biblical account of the war in heaven seriously, then you're kind of left in the position of having to, you know, take seriously the thought experiment of, of how uh, how the devil himself would feel about what's going on right now. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> you just look at sort of what's going on with Joe Biden, and these are some extraordinarily disturbing hmm. and bizarre and uncanny developments, which we are being allowed to see on the television and on social media. You know, a guy who is 
in a dramatic state of neurological decline. You know, if you have uh, like an elderly family member who's gone through, you know, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, you know, real sort of dramatic neurological decline. I mean, you see this for what it is. I don't know why we're being conditioned to kind of like joke about this and like watch it over and over again. I'm sure Kamala Harris is very, very excited about what the future holds. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, this is a point in American life where there's a, a tremendous vacuum in leadership. We got some good people out there, you know, they're, they're trying hard, uh, but we need more of them and we need them to, uh, to really step into the breach. And so, you know, in that breach, you, it's, it's inevitable that you ask yourself, well, who's, who's really running things? Is anyone really running things? Uh, is it really just sort of evil sowing seeds of dissension and chaos? Uh, you know, these are questions that don't have immediate answers. It, it, sometimes you can find stuff on the internet that leaves you feeling a little bit better off. And uh, oftentimes you just find kind of a mess that makes you sort of question your life choices. So I'm not saying that like uh, Wikipedia is going to, is going to give you the answers to these questions. Uh, but you know, part of, I think part of Christian humility is having the courage to sit with these questions, to face them head on and to acknowledge the fact that they exist and that we are in a time and in a dispensation where we, we got to sit with these questions and start thinking them through and, you know, and organizing our, our efforts and, um, and on, you're starting to do the, the hard work that you probably, you know, if, if we're lucky, won't end for centuries, um, of, uh, of reconstituting, rebuilding our culture on, not just a stable footing for the digital age, uh, but but for any human age. Well, James, you have been so generous with your time, uh, and thank you. But I know you have other things to do. So can we can we kind of finish up on this note, real specifically and practically? Again, thinking about people who maybe are just now catching up. Hopefully, two related questions you could answer together. One: What are a few points of what faithfulness looks like now? Um, faithfulness in, in cultivating humanity, protecting humanity, pushing back about you know, against some of the bad guys here. And then relatedly, how does your book aim at that purpose? I, you know, give us, give our listeners, uh, if this hasn't been enough, maybe there's no, you know, incentive that would convince them, but give our listeners uh, an understanding of why they need to pick up Human Forever and continue reading along you, uh, these lines with you. Yeah, well, as far as the book goes, uh, if you're if you're looking for information, just like what the heck is going on, how do I catch up to speed? Uh, how do I make heads or tails of this world? Uh, this book will do that for you. Uh, if you're looking for sort of like, okay, I, I got it. I understand sort of what position we're in. It's not so great, but I think I can deal with it. So like, give me some marching orders. Tell me where the opportunities are. Where can we go that will make the most impact? This book will do that for you. Uh, or if you're just sort of feeling like, what is the point? Why should I even bother? You know, I mean, I've I've got more than a few decades under my belt. Uh, at a certain point, you know, you start moving a little slower. You start kind of like looking back on your life and, th you know, you can almost feel events sort of moving faster than you can process them. Um, and if you're looking for just encouragement for just a, you know, something that'll kind of nourish that feeling in your soul. That's like, uh, man, you know, there's a missing puzzle piece and like, what is it? I tried to write that book, you know, for, for you, if, if that's the way you're feeling, uh, you know, it's, it's deep. These are deep questions. So it dives into the water. Uh, but it's a pretty short read. I wrote it in about a month's time. I, you know, I had a, a, a narrow window. I got a little mini sabbatical from, from my work at Claremont, uh, and just knocked this thing out. You know, it was the product of many years of, of study and research. And I really wanted to just distill it all down and make a statement that was going to be, you know, useful for right now. Uh, but something that, you know, hopefully has some, some legs to it. So it's under 300 words. There, there's some, I, I moved all the footnotes into endnotes, So it doesn't, you know, doesn't clutter the text. Uh, I'm not trying to flex on you. I'm not trying to show, you know, anything. I, I'm not going through the New York publishing houses. You know, I did my first book through through St. Martin's Press. And, you know, they're fine and everything. But, like, this this book is different. This time is different. Um, I, I wanted to do it independently. Uh, I wanted to speak freely and not have, you know, some some person worried about politics or about, you know, uh, the, the, the accounting department or human resources kind of looking over my shoulder trying to edit every line that I wrote. Uh, so this is really from the heart. This is this is from the heart and uh, written for right now, written for people who, uh, you know, whether they need courage or they just need some information or whether they, they want to, you know, hear uh, a voice outside their head saying things that they know to be true. Um, or, you know, or really you just if and if you feel like you got everything together, and you know what this moment is and and you're ready to attack uh, and you just want to, like, add someone to uh, to the, the the line to the vanguard marching forward. I'm your guy. So, uh I'm I'm honored to uh, to present it. Grateful to share it. Uh, if you go over to humanforever.us, 
humanforever.us. Uh, you can just plug in your email and you'll be among the first to know uh, when the NFTs hit, if you're into that crypto thing, uh, and then when the uh, when the book itself is actually on sale, which will be soon. Okay, excellent, excellent. Um, so, uh, again, catching up with your work and, and talking about faithfulness, uh, you mentioned Claremont. I didn't realize you were with Claremont. I'm so encouraged by Claremont's work. Uh, the American Mind is something I'm already, I'm already reading. And then um, the new founding, I uh, found out that you were connected with them. The, the newsletter, the uh, line newsletter from New Founding is some of the most encouraging thing things that I receive in my inbox. So I appreciate all your work, brother. And uh, I, I only regret that it's taken me this long to kind of find out about your work and start catching up. But I'm eating as quick as I can. Thank you for uh, thank you for your time this evening. Hey, I'm I'm grateful for all that. That's uh, that's high praise, and uh, you know I'm working hard with the guys at Claremont and New Founding on uh, on some some new projects as well that uh, that hopefully will be uh, exciting and and they're around the corner too. So uh, keep the faith. Um, there's plenty for us to do out there, and there's a lot of us at this point who are who are ready to to create uh, you know the kinds of of new structures, you know new new green shoots that are gonna that are gonna last and see us through uh, this this moment. So uh, it's been a pleasure to be on. Thanks for your time. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, listener. I'm going to maximize my time here with James, and so I'll put links to the show notes and give you a little bit more information as we finish up the episode here in a moment. Thanks again, James. Have a good evening. All right. Take care. All right, y'all. I trust that was as fascinating for you as it was for me. Get on over to humanforever.us to sign up for notice when James's book releases. While you're there, check out the tab labeled Other Works, and you can get started reading. James is also on Twitter at J-A-M-E-S-P-O-U-L-O-S. You're going to want to read Human Forever, so be sure to sign up for notification on humanforever.us. He was kind enough to send me an advanced reading copy. Here's a heads up. As you know by now, James is a top-shelf intellect. I'm a guy who reads a lot, both professionally and for private interests. That doesn't make me a genius, but I'm also pretty used to engaging with some heady material in print. Human Forever hits the ground running, and it doesn't let up. You've got to hang with it, though, and you'll be glad you did. And you'll want to keep up with James's work going forward, too, I'm sure. So I'll put links to his stuff in the show notes. One last plug. You can find James on the American Mind podcast, and he recently did an interview on John Gabriel's King of Stuff podcast. All right, that's it for me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pop Culture Quorum Dale podcast. For Jared Moore, this is Jeff Wright reminding you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God, because you are. Talk to you next time.